0: Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. As you are probably aware, there's been a bit of a tumultuous week in geoengineering. And we are here today to speak to Pete Irving about the case for climate engineering. Why are people researching this? Why do people want to do it? We've had a lot of papers on the subject, but not so much of a defence of the research area and the possibility of doing geoengineering overall. Welcome to the show, Pete. Hi, Andrew. So, by way of background, for those who are unaware of the bright light that uh, shines from you, could you give us a bit of an introduction as to who you are and your background in the subject? Because it's both notable and long standing.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I, I started working on this subject in 2009 when I did a PhD straight out of a physics degree. I was looking around for things to do with a physics degree that would still apply physics. Starting
0: Tesla didn't grab you.
1: I think that was that was before that was before that time, and yeah, I'm not quite very business minded. But I, I think I mean, looking out in the real world in terms of businesses, the kind of things that were on offer were you know how to find oil, how to make money by manipulating markets, how to make missiles, and how to develop nuclear bombs. And so I didn't really fancy doing any of those.
0: Well, I quite um, like all. I quite like all of those, but I'm just not clever enough for their physics degree. So. <laughs> So, so, yeah, I, I
1: was just like one night I came across this PhD proposal. I'm just browsing around thinking about being at the, the strike of midnight. I, I saw this and I was like, oh, this sounds like a really that's interesting very, idea. That's very cinematic. I, I, I'm adding some flourishes there. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I came across it and it's like, I guess the thing that appealed to me about physics was by understanding the way the world works, we've arrived at some very sort of surprising and powerful forces and solutions to these problems obviously things like the nuclear bomber are a bit more mixed i think you know it was very appealing to me with my sort of interest in sci-fi and my physics degree to see this proposal solar engineering that was effectively you know looking at climate change at a slightly more abstract level more fundamental level thinking not so we, just we look- that this is a problem of co2 buildup, but that this is fundamentally a problem of thermal radiation building up of the energy balance of the earth and the energy balance of the earth has got these two sides there's the heat trapping gases the greenhouse effect and then there's the incoming sunlight and how much gets reflected so it kind of appealed that you know to my sort of inner physicist that there's there's some there's something potentially here and we just need to understand it to see if it makes sense
0: so i we always like a good tangent on reviewer too so you mentioned that you're a bit of a sci-fi nut so what sort of stuff influences you? Do you like a kind of near-term sci-fi, sort of more dystopian, or are you into your big space operas and stuff like that?
1: Oh, I was, I was, I was really, I really love a big space opera stuff. Uh, but I think i went into all, all, all various sorts. So, I mean, I think uh, I'm a little getting get a little tired of dystopias. It seems a little easy. You know, you just sort of sweep the board, everyone dies except for our heroes, and then there's some enemies. You know, it's it's a bit too simple a vision of the future you know you you wish everything away and then just um you've got a a clean slate to write your story on i think i'm kind of more interested in these these more complex visions of the future where the real world's here in a more messy
0: stranger transformed way i like the kind of non-idealistic sci-fi i I think when everything's polished and shiny it's a bit it's a bit silly really because the future will still have and things like that and 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 a lot of the time people just forget that everything will still be annoying and broken in the future we actually had elliot pepper on the podcast we tried to get neil stevenson on but his publicist told us he was too busy and then he went and did your podcast instead which is like okay well we're obviously not the cool kids then anymore are we so (laughs) um, so you came into cellage engineering i think you've been quite long-standing were you a silimar
1: I did not go to a Selimar. I I just started my PhD. I, I think I thought I was the first PhD student to do the, to work on the subject, and then I discovered that Kate Ricky and well, Juan Marino Cruz had got there first, and Nim Vaughn as well had all done some had all started about a year or two before I did. So I was I was almost in the sort of the first batch of PhDs uh, to work on the topic.
0: So you are kind of. You're portraying yourself as sort of joint first, even though other well, people. Well, all right. I was, I, was, I, was, I was fourth, fourth or something. All right, five. <laughs> okay. So your your current position, you are 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 at my university. So tell us how great it is, if you could, because I'd like people to think that I a very good university, so that people might give me a job to do this and pay me for it instead of doing all this work for no money.
1: Yeah, well, so I'm based, at, I'm based at UCL now, a lecturer at the earth, in the Earth Sciences Department, which is a great department. And if you're thinking of studying Earth Sciences or learning about the environment and climate change, it's a great place to do it. So I'm also chair of the recruitment committee, so that might be a slightly
0: biased tape. It's, I, in, I'm a, it's in the middle of a city, though. Why would somebody who's interested in, I mean, most people are interested in Earth science. They like kind of rocks and hills and oceans and stuff. So, so why would they go in the middle of a city?
1: There's plenty of opportunities. The, the undergraduate course has lots of field trips all across the well, country and internationally, normally, when COVID isn't in the way. But yeah, I mean, i just at UCL. and Basically, I think the I should take a step back. I mean, after doing my PhD, which was focused on analyzing the climate response to solar engineering in the same kinds of climate models that we use to project climate change. I kind of got to the end of that PhD and I was like, well, well, what does all that mean? You know, I've got like, you know, such and such you know, 5% reduction in rainfall here, you know, 0.1 Celsius change here and there. Like, what on earth does that mean? Both in terms of the impact side, like does a 5% reduction in rainfall, is that disastrous? Is it moderate? Is it fine? I had those kind of questions, but also I was really interested in the interdisciplinary issues, like the ethical issues, the governance issues, the broader concerns about this. And so I I moved to the IASS, just I'm forgetting the title of it now, Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, where I worked in this interdisciplinary group for about another three and a half, four years. Uh, uh, before, where you
0: met Andy Parker, right? Yeah, great- Andy
1: Parker and others. Yeah, quite a few people who, who published loads on the topic went, went there for a few years. Then I was at Harvard for four years before this position now at UCL. If we are to understand this idea and its potential and its risks... We need to both explore those, you know, the widest possible range of implications, the ethical, political, and so on. And we need to understand its physical consequences. But furthermore, we need to combine those two. You know, you, you can't get a good sense of the, say, the geopolitical risks of this idea unless you can get a good sense of, you know, to what extent do the interests of the U.S. and China align or misalign? You know, is this something that, you know, if China does it its way, it's going to be disastrous for India? We don't yeah. know. And I think that's why I'm really interested in working at that.
0: Your heritage in the Keith Group is of particular interest because I work the IASS and the Keith Group, which are kind of two the two main places to work. So, you know, I wonder if you could talk about the cultural issues and stuff there. Pete? Are you back?
1: Yes, I'm back. Had to switch to phone internet.
0: Okay. How annoying. Anyway, well, look, we're able to... Let it, out. it does still appear to be recording so that's the main thing so I'll just go back into full flow so you've worked at the IASS and you've also worked at Harvard in the Keith group right it's the kind of two leading institutions in in cellular engineering in terms of both the productivity of the scholars that work there and in terms of also the cultural impact so I wanted to understand how that career trajectory has affected your thinking and what you've noticed about the two groups I mean I think that as an outsider the IASS might be perceived as being quite a cautious institution and Harvard might be portrayed as being rather more gung-ho and in terms of contextualizing the your opinions it's very interesting to hear what your cultural heritage is and how that's affected your thinking.
1: Yeah I guess just briefly I mean I think IASS you know Mark Lawrence recruited various PhDs and and so on as postdocs to the group and I think we were more or less given free reign to sort of do what we want. This group at Harvard is quite a different thing. You know, he's leading the group. He's got his ideas and we sort of collaborate. Although, I, again, I had quite a bit of freedom there. But I say it in, at the ISS, it was more putting out our own ideas, working our own things and trying to collaborate and do stuff together. A really good experience in a way that, you know, trying to do interdisciplinarity in a very free roaming way led to quite a few failures, quite a few successes and a, and a lot of learning about how that works and what what, what kinds of disciplines mesh together. I guess the, the fact that different disciplines speak kind of different languages and one of the big challenges in interdisciplinarity is like understanding each other's language and uh, what, how they say things, what different words like risk mean in their context. And then, you know, whether you're the field's mesh and you can start doing so productive often also depends on, you know, what are the goals of scholarship in each domain? Like what are the types of output that they value, the types of arguments that they're kind of able to address and pursue? So, I mean, just to, I guess my conclusion was like there's a, a bunch of fields which have a kind of a strong consequentialist element. So, ethics, economics, and science can go quite well together. Some of the other fields, it's, it's a little harder to, I think it's more work, I think, to bridge across. So, I don't it was it was a good experience and I learned a lot.
0: Yeah. So, what you're saying, as I understand it, there is that you've got a consequentialist framework, which is, you know, what, what does what we do cause to happen? And then the other framing is, I think, called the ontologicalism, if I'm correct, which is yeah. the validity of the rules that we use to govern our behavior. And there are two different ways of looking at the world, right? So yeah. you, you said that you're quite interested in the policy aspect, which is unusual for physicists, right? Although David Keith has also also thought quite deeply about this kind of thing. So it'd be interesting to sort of see what philosophical framing you use as your kind of go-to way of thinking about the problem?
1: I mean I guess I should say I mean I guess I kind of got I did a physics undergraduate but by the end of it I was really getting quite fed up with physics and I did uh, quite a lot of reading of you know random little bits of philosophy here and there and started like you know cultivating sort of broader academic interests in a very unprofessional sense but just you know I started reading around a bit more and I think I think with psychology engineering that's again one of the things that attracted to me attracted me to it was not just the You know, this is a big sci-fi idea that might have a big impact on the world, maybe, whether for good or ill, but also that it's a really messy, interesting, ambiguous problem. And that means that it's not just about, you know, a simple, you know, does it technically add up? That's not the end of the story. It's got all these interesting multifaceted elements that, you know, for, you know, reasonable people with the same set of facts can come to reasonable conclusions that are different.
0: On this yeah, it's sort of somewhat like nuclear weapons, right? I mean, it's a it's a physics technology, physics-based technology, but you are asking an important bunch of social questions around it, and there are people within the geoengineering movement who are very strongly opposed to nuclear weapons, like Alan Robot, very public about it. I don't think I'm betraying any yeah. conf- confidence. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure who's,
1: who's very pro-nuclear weapons. I mean, I, I guess, but well, I, I, mean, th- I, th- I think, I think, think it's this- easy...
0: I don't want to express my own opinions on the podcast, but I think it's easy to look at the history of the world and, and, and see how oh, nuclear true. weapons have been correlated with um, peace, albeit somewhat uneasy peace, between nations. There haven't been direct conflicts between nuclear weapons states yeah. in Main. So in terms of the kind of peacekeeping approach, you can at least make that case, right? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean that's it's a, that's a very a...
1: different character of technology. So I, I mean, I'm just quite wary about putting the two side by side and saying they're they've got these similarities
0: because yeah, they're they're really fundamentally different. No, I, of course they're very very different in character, and I, I wouldn't argue otherwise. The point I was making is simply that <laughs> nuclear weapons you know have have, at least at the time of the development a a massive technological advance and there are still big technological challenges challenges with them at the moment i mean such as the hypersonic carrier vehicles that both russia and china are working on at the moment and so the the, kind of crossover that you're describing kind of floats your boat that that exists in the field of uh, nuclear weapons as well
1: um yes i I mean maybe something i have to say here is i I'm not sure this is the sort of thought i've written down anywhere but i I think I think in a way it's a mischaracterization to speak of solar geoengineering as an emerging novel technology, in the same way that we could talk of nuclear weapons or the internet or gene drives or so on and so forth as novel technologies. I think what those are, are novel capabilities, and with solar geoengineering, it's a novel. Intention. It's a novel approach to a, to an environmental problem. We're trying to do something new to the system. Well, that's the idea.
0: Yeah, there's a I mean, it, there's a twofold innovation. Well, I think you're describing it. It's, it's a twofold innovation. So, firstly, you have a new toy, but that new toy, secondly, is also enabling you to do a new thing, and that new thing is the deliberate global scale manipulation of the climate system. Right. Yeah, so-
1: and, and I think I think doing the new thing is the part that's it's new with solar engineering. the actual technology elements aren't that novel, you know, aircraft
0: that fly quite high. Aren't, well, aren't, I mean, people keep saying this, and I do find it's physicists keep saying this, and not engineers. Being a lowly grease monkey myself, I have always held the view that technology is always trivial when it works, and, and never trivial before. And the point is that, I mean, for example, the one thing that sticks in my mind about this is David Keith spending 10 years telling everybody that all you had to do is change the engines on a business jet. And then you've got your geoengineering system. And then Wake Smith went and politely pointed out to him that if you did that, the plane would fall out of the sky and everyone would die. And Wake Smith had the chops to convince David of something that I hadn't got the chops. I mean, I, you know, I'm not trying to compare myself to Wake Smith. He spent his entire career in aviation He knows exactly what he's talking about. And I was just bringing a kind of healthy dose of scepticism. But the point I'm making is that technology only exists when it exists, right? Just because you can conceive of something and that looks fairly simple doesn't mean that there aren't a myriad of technical challenges to get there. And I think that it's unwise to play down both the physical development process and also the politics of that development process and, and the controversy about the borderline between research and development has certainly been on everyone's minds. In the last week, because that's fairly central to a lot of people's objections and concerns, right? That
1: global stratospheric aerosol engineering would require a jet with a new set of capabilities or a set of reconfiguration of capabilities in a novel way that hasn't, you know, pursuing a flight profile that no other aircraft has done. You could build such an aircraft and not mention geoengineering, but there's only really one thing that it would be used for is, you know, carrying T- tons up to the stratosphere, and it's, and it's going to be yeah quite a major economic, well a fairly major economic hurdle to go for. I mean, you've got to spend a few billion dollars to to develop such an aircraft. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and, if we're
0: going to develop novel aircraft to do it, then then that th- those kind of costs are certainly realistic. But just to challenge your previous point, I mean, the rapid freight of high value cargo around the earth. Let's say, for example, we went for a supersonic aircraft, which is not an impossible idea there it's conceivable that that there are high value freight cargos that we might want to take around the planet in in short order and so to say that you know we're developing a technology with an understanding that absolutely no spin outs could ever come out of it I mean that, that'd be pretty bold to make that claim I think so who knows where geoengineering might take might take us just to return to the, the sci-fi point at the moment to what extent I mean do you think that the the reason that you're interest in geoengineering or what sparked your attention to it is the aesthetic I mean from my point of view and I've always been quite honest about my own sort of petty prejudices in, in this regard I've, I've always found the appeal of the kind of high modernism of geoengineering to be one of the core aspects of its fascination it is this kind of it sits in that uncomfortable space between utopia and dystopia and it's genuinely hard to work out whether it's a saint or sinner and certainly the debate that rages around the technology implies that other people, you know, not necessarily in any one individual in society as a whole, that there, there is certainly a dichotomy here where it's often portrayed as being terrible nightmare for the world and alternatively as being something which is a glorious help and can save millions of lives. So I really like that, the aesthetic challenge. I find it just genuinely interesting to work on it. Has that been something that's motivated you? Well, I mean,
1: as I was mentioning, I mean, it's, you know, from the physics of the situation, we know that we have a high leverage thing here that could really change the planet. And it's therefore, you know, it addresses what is arguably one of the leading concerns of the 21st century is climate change. And it's really tricky (laughs) to see. It's really, it's really, I think there's a, a really, a real moral challenge and political challenge to like you know is this the right thing to do and can the world work together to do it well i think it's what's what's really interesting about this idea in a lot of ways is that some of those things are really up in the air and it's really not sure which way things are going to land but this could have potentially great potential for good or great potential for ill it could be deemed a great you know moral success you know life saved species saved and so on or be, you know, some terrible mistake that the twenty-first century makes. It's, I think, it's really interesting to be working on something where it's, it's reasonable people can come to completely opposing views on this because it matters. It's something that could really matter, which is why it's worth um, talking about.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, revolutionary technologies often have huge downsides. Like, for example, you know, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, nuclear weapons proliferation, disinformation on the internet. You know, all of these fascinating moral challenges and keep scholars busy. Just to put this into a slightly sort of abstract context, though, do you think that this is all human progress? I mean, you are sort of generally of a, a bent where you're sort of seeing the kind of increasing technological development of society as being a benefit, or or do you think that we are you yes. know racing towards our own destruction on a on a geological timescale? Do you think that technology yeah to benefit mankind or just hasten its ultimate destruction
1: well that's the question isn't it <laughs> i mean I, I, oh. I think there's the yeah i i i mean i think it's hard to argue in a way if you start if you sort of go from the ground up in a consequentialist way of like you know quality of life measures you know people dying from this or that in disease it's you know People being well fed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of ways in which the world is a better place today than it has ever been. Not universally, it could a lot be, be a lot better. There's lots of there's lots of problems, but you know, compared to the Middle Ages, life is a lot better for, for most people. Whether that, whether this could stay on the road, that for the next century or two is a real question. And I, I, yeah, I really don't know. I agree know.
0: with you there. It's a challenge because you know there are. One of the things that most concerns me about about technological progress, I mean, I have worked at well, in what I, I believe on a day-to-day basis to kind of make things better. You know, I try and help companies make better products and I help people build better buildings and I help, you know, in my own small way with academia as well, right? It kind of feels like you're making progress, but then you look into the night sky and you see all their stars and you think, well, where are, where is everybody? What happened to them? Where did it all go wrong, Right. And you think, well, maybe this technological progress thing goes a bit wrong, and it goes a bit wrong quite quickly once it starts to to spiral. But um, that's a a fascinating diversion, but one we should probably not divert on for too long, otherwise we'll be well off topic. My understanding of your position is that you want to maintain your engineering as being research avenue and a policy option. You're not advocating as a replacement for mitigation. You want to defend the position geoengineering to fulfill that role in the face of a lot of opposition from other scholars, most notably the signatories of the most recent letter, who take a lot dimmer a view of the role of solar geoengineering and the way that it might, in the minds of others, divert us from more important actions on climate. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think it's very worth, you know, stating where things are what the climate problem is, right? To a, a pretty good approximation, the planet is going to... Global mean temperatures are linearly proportional to the cumulative amount of CO2 that we put into the system, which means that to stop the planet warming, we need to bring CO2 emissions to zero. And the can longer just, it
0: takes... Can I just draw you on that? Because that, my, my physics on this is not great. I've not come up to climate change from a physics perspective. My understanding of it is that as you put more of any one greenhouse gas... Into the atmosphere, then it gets much less effective, and the sensitivity, the climate sensitivity, is calculated from a doubling of carbon dioxide, not from a linear increase in carbon dioxide. For each doubling, you get the same increase. Now, but yeah. you're describing it as being linear. So, ha- so, this is
1: this is it's a relatively new and when I first saw it, surprising finding of climate science that yes, there's a whole set of non-linearities that some act one way and some act the other, and you'd think you know surely they're not going to cancel out but the fact is there if you plot it over the historical period and across future scenarios and climate models the temperature versus cumulative co2 falls on a linear straight on a straight line
0: well that's um, really interesting because I, I i i thought it was the response to this to the uh, so each yes, doubling gave you three right. degrees or six right. degrees if or you, whatever if you
1: double if you double the co2 concentration and then you have to double it again to get the same amount so it's not linearly rising with co2 is rising with the logarithm co2 but there's yeah there's a whole set of things like co2 you add to the atmosphere is being you know gradually taken out of the atmosphere and put into the oceans there's a set of things that act in the opposite direction and yeah
0: basically are you talking about sorry be clear just to make sure that i understand what you mean by this are you saying that it's linear response to concentration or linear response to emissions
1: no, it's a it's there is a linear relationship between cumulative CO two emissions and global mean temperature.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. That that's less that that's less jarring. So basically, when we put in a trillion tons of CO two, which I think is roughly what we've done to date, then we'll get a certain amount of warning. When when we've done our second trillion tons, which is sort of conceivably what we might do before we finish off the job, then we will have a, you know, roughly double the amount of warming we've already got. So this is where, you know, we're roughly at one degrees and we're roughly going to get to two degrees or thereabout if we're good boys and do what we're supposed to do, right? That's a crude approximation of where we are with climate change. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yes, there's a linear relationship between cumulative CO2 emissions and temperature. That means if you stop emitting, when you stop emitting CO2, the planet's, roughly speaking, going to stop warming. And how long it takes you to get there is how long you got until it stops warming. Now, of course, the rate of warming is proportional to how much CO2 you emit, because that's kind of the the rate that you're going along the x-axis here of this relationship. So yeah, it's it's pretty simple. We need to cut CO2 to zero to bring this problem to a halt, but it'll only halt it at a higher temperature. The temperature will not fall very quickly. It'll be sat there for for centuries. Gradually comes down. There's two competing factors. The, The CO2 in the atmosphere is gradually going to be taken up by the ocean in the long run. And so over time, the CO2 concentration after you reach uh, net zero emissions is going to fall, uh, even without carbon dioxide removal. But kind of balancing that fall is the fact that the planet hasn't fully warmed up in response to the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. So you've got this sort of residual warming that's still building up, but you've got the falling CO2, and the two effects sort of cancel out for a while. And then, yeah, gradually, temperatures will fall. But basically, eliminating CO2 emissions will plateau temperatures at a new high level. That's going to cause some problems. So, so, yeah, I mean, I so where we are is, you know, we're, we've emitted such and such amount of CO2. We're emitting more today than we have ever in the past, although there was a blip around COVID. And, yeah, the commitments that countries have made, the Paris Agreement and following up from that, uh, do not amount to what would be required to limit warming to one and a half Celsius, which was from 2015, emissions would need to have fallen by around 50% by 2030 they haven't they've risen so far and they're projected to more or less be about the same in 2030 that's if you add up countries commitments so the planet's going to keep warming for the coming dec- for a few decades and you know depending on how you calculate you know what path we're on currently we could expect anywhere between 2 and 3ish celsius if 2 2 to 3 celsius based on the co2 emissions but then of course there's uncertainty in how sensitive the climate is to to co2 so we could get Four celsius of warming if we're unlucky that the planet is more sensitive than we than our best guess
0: there's a few things I kind of have in my head and want to say here and, and some of them are kind of contradictory and I'm, I'm genuinely not quite sure what i believe here in that firstly i want to understand the kind of climate sensitivity issue because i've two, two contradictory thoughts because on the one hand i i think that adapting to Two, two degrees, three degrees of temperature change is going to be challenging, but not particularly difficult because the, you know, the the people are quite naturally quite adaptable. We see, think of as today's way of life is very, very different from our grandparents' way of life and change is the only constant, right? So if, if the weather patterns change and some areas get hotter and some areas get drier and some areas get colder, people adapt, they'll move around, they'll farm different crops, things like that. At the same time, the thing that I can't get over, and, and I've never managed to think my way around this problem, is sea level rise. You know, all, almost all of our major cities are near the coast, right? So if you think about San Fran, NYC, London, and then you've got whole low-lying areas like Bangladesh where, you know, entire population groups are right by the, um, the coast. I can't see how we're going to deal with that. I mean, like, we can't just move. Can't put San Francisco on a lorry and take it and build it where Vladivostok is, can we? I mean, it's just not possible. The adaptation to those kind of changes is is just impossible. What do you what do you think of that? Yeah,
1: so I think I think it's a good time to sort of go through what kind of impacts we're expecting from climate change. And I think I think you're right to draw a distinction. I think you you drew the right distinctions there between human systems and I guess, ecosystems there, I think we need to think of those separately when we're thinking about climate impacts of the future. And we need to think separately about those risks which are correlated with temperature. And as CO2 is correlated with temperature and current policy, ocean acidification sort of scales with, you know, how much CO2 we emit. And sea level rise, where, I mean, I I was laying out the thing that once we eliminate CO2 emissions, temperatures are going to plateau. So we're going to be in a new climate Society will over time adapt as best it can and ecosystems will, you know, either be wiped out or adapt. And again, over time, we'll we'll become familiar with a new situation. But all the while, sea level rise will be continuing at a faster and faster rate. I mean, we expect, I think sea level rise is going to be, you know, so large in the 21st century, but it's going to be larger still. There's an even greater increase in sea level rise in the 22nd and then likely even greater in the 23rd, potentially, depending on if we drive CO2 and temperatures down. When Once we eliminate CO2 emissions the planet stops warming, you know, forgetting solar engineering for a moment, the world will get less, will gradually get adapted to that, but sea level rise is going to become a the leading concern once we eliminate CO2 emissions, once temperatures peak, because um, it's, it's going to keep going
0: and keep going draw you, and keep going. Just to draw you on, on the ecosystem point, I mean, E- ecosystems are naturally resilient. I mean, obviously, you can have a, an extreme situation where you have something like an asteroid strike or a nuclear war or whatever, where you'd be looking at the instantaneous destruction of thousands or millions of species, and and that's profoundly disruptive. So, well, an ecosystem can cease to exist. Like you can chop down a rainforest, but then left to its own devices, a new ecosystem will form, which is itself a functional ecosystem. So, are we just a bit too precious um, about the flux of the natural world which is which in deep geological time has been no bad thing
1: i mean i guess it depends if you ask the species that went extinct or not (laughs) you know the did the dinosaur's mind going extinct i think to some extent uh, but first maybe it's worth thinking about the character of ecosystem impacts versus human impacts because you know species live the way they live or they're sort of for the most part genetically programmed to live the way they live so if the environment changes around them they've got Sort of, I guess, three choices. What is, you know, you know, it's within their adaptive capability. They just, you know, get used to it being warmer. They move because, you know, they might be on the, the southern end of their range and it gets too hot for them to live there. So they got to either move to the north or or get wiped out. You know, if they live on an island or up a mountain. They're they're in deep trouble because there's nowhere to go. And yeah, I think on the on the on the value side, how to value the loss of ecosystems. I mean. Do we miss the dinosaurs? I don't. Know. It's kind of it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I think I think we've given that we're the ones leading to all this environmental change. We've got a responsibility to those affected, and that means not just the people, but also the, the other the other things we share the planet with. So ecosystems, yeah, look, I'm, species, don't get me wrong. and so on.
0: I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to the deep brain arguments. You know, I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that humans are the only thing that matters. But what I'm saying here is that climate change will potentially impose very there's significant disruptions but let's let's imagine for example that you've got a mammal that forms some ecological niche and it lives up a mountain and that mountain gets hotter and hotter and hotter and then the mammal's range reduces to the point where there's no range left and therefore the mammal becomes extinct right in the place of that mammal you could either get another mammal that comes up from the mountain or something that's more mobile like a bird or whatever that comes in and forms that ecological Niche, you know, you'll still have a functioning ecosystem at the end of it. It's not like we're going to be, you know, wandering around with the smoking wreckage of broken trees everywhere. I mean, that, that might occur in some places, but it's, you know, it's not like we just won't have ecosystems on, on, on the earth. Are we are we not just too precious about the status quo when it comes to nature?
1: Well, I think there's different things. I mean, I think, you know, checking out the BEARS report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity stuff, I think they were saying that five percent of all species are threatened with extinction at, in a two Celsius world. I think that rose to like fifteen odd percent, if I remember rightly, in a four Celsius world. That's a world that's that's poorer, that's less vibrant, less rich than it would be without climate change. Now, climate change is not the leading driver of ecosystem impacts and biodiversity loss today. It's land use—you know, chopping down things to put you know our our land there instead of the natural land. And you know, there's various pollution and natural exploitation. I think natural exploitation is ahead of climate change currently. So I think if if we don't do something about climate change, or even if we do 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 something about climate change, there's going to be a considerable, yeah, just a, a big loss the, the, we're going to have a less diverse planet. But I mean, yeah, it, I think how to value, you know, one ecosystem or another, it's it's a difficult thing to say. And I think, but I think, I think there's a there's a strong case to make that limiting climate change is a good idea. Even if even if humans could be fully adapted to, even if we could fully adapt to all its impacts, we still have a strong case for limiting climate change because of the ecosystem impacts. I mean, I think a world without tropical coral reefs is going to be a, a poorer world, less vibrant, less rich world. And we, we should do what we can to avoid that.
0: I mean, just to draw you on that specific point, I mean, will that actually happen? I mean, I know that individual reefs and individual reef species might die, but I mean, there have been dramatic like, climate changes in the past will we lose the uh, tropical coral reefs?
1: reefs have gone extinct like five times in the past and re you know millions of years later they they re-evolved the soft corals or polyps that sort of live in times when there weren't hard corals so so the coral reef ecosystem has gone extinct global globally multiple times okay. and just to, again remembering from the as report i think it was something like yeah, by, by two Celsius of warming, 99% of all current tropical coral reef extent will be uh, not habitable for coral reefs. So we're really, there might be some tiny little refuges and, you know, there'll be places in labs where we keep hold of it. But it's, the coral reefs are, are on the way out
0: unless uh, we do something radical. So I do love a good detail here. You, you just piqued my interest there. So you were saying that corals have gone completely extinct and then re-evolved five times i mean are they exactly the same I, as they I, were or
1: let me let me just say that's something i vaguely heard one time and i wouldn't say it's a robust thing but i, I believe coral reefs have gone extinct multiple times like the reef forming variant of corals there's the little polyp creatures they live in different forms and there's different variants around that survive these events but their coral their coral forming brethren all died out but because it's such a good adaptation i believe they re-evolved that's the five times and so on and so forth is I, I'm just sort of winging it because I don't remember, but I believe that's the case. Well, that's Something
0: fascinating. Like that. I'm really glad that uh, I've you covered that because it's it great to learn a bit more about that. So the other things that I want to talk to you about, the kind of the deep time of adaptations to st- the CO2 levels that we have at the moment, I really want to understand the issue about the how we deal with these long-term consequences. So we have two issues. So firstly, the sea level rise. It, is that at all addressable with solar geoengineering and the second question i had was about the long carbon debt we've built up in the atmosphere so we're going to have this this carbon's not going anywhere so is it technically and economically feasible to remove it all or are we just going to have to learn to live with it with a combination of adaptation and solar geoengineering or can you genuinely see a world <clears> where <throat> we undo the entire industrial revolution from a carbon point of view because I can understand why someone flying across the Atlantic might decide that they want to pay or they might be mandated to pay another 75 pounds or whatever to play to pay some carbon removal let's assume that we get down to those kind of levels I don't think it's wholly unfeasible that we might do but what I find challenging is to work out wh- why anyone could afford to or would want to pay for the removal of their grandfather's emissions.
1: Well, that's a couple of questions there. I mean, let, let me start with the sea level rise one. I mean, I, th- I think the point you were making earlier that sea level is one of those ones where I, I don't know en- enough about the regional consequences because I think the the question of how manageable sea level rise is highly localized. Like it really depends on the geography of the specific cities affected,
0: you know, because uh, if okay. trying what I'm trying to draw you on is the global ability to manage sea level rise using solar geoengineering.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, I guess I, I just wanted, I thought it'd be nice if we finished sort of explaining where things stood with climate risks before moving on to the, the, but yeah, I could talk about that, but just to finish that point, yeah, I mean, I think sea level rise is a global phenomenon. It has regional variations due to wind and due to the gravitational effects of the two ice sheets. You know, if you melt, surpri- a surprising result is if you melted all of Greenland, sea levels around the UK would stay roughly the same. And around Greenland, they drop because the gravitational pull of, of the Greenland ice sheet actually changes where the, the sort of the natural sea level is on the planet. That's one um, of my favorite climate facts. Man. It's, a, it's a fun one. Yeah. But yeah, what? How, how sea level rise impacts places is really different, different and really depends on the on the geography. And I I really don't have a good sense of how bad it is overall. What can be done in places? I mean, I think London, it's got the potential for another barrier. Some places it's you know, Miami is just quite flat. Like, can what can they do? I, I don't know enough to say. I know it's going to be a major, major, major challenge. So, sea level rise. I mean, I guess, yeah, talking about. Maybe it's worth taking a step back and thinking, you know, what does what does solar geoengineering do, and why do we expect it to potentially have have some benefits? Like, why are we even talking about this idea? The fact is, the reason that Earth is warming is that it's absorbing more radiation, more thermal radiation, than it's emitting to space. It's currently doing that because there is a buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that's making it harder for the thermal radiation emitted by the Earth to get into space, radiate back to the surface, warming us up. But the, su- the Earth is primarily heated by the sun. So if we do something that increases the amount of sunlight reflected from the planet, such as stratospheric aerosol engineering, we can be certain that it will warm less. Because the simple the simple fact that the, the, Earth's, response, the Earth's energy budget is shaping its temperature response is, is going to hold. So if you scatter light to space, you will reduce the warming from climate change. You can offset the warming from climate change. I think an intuition that many people have is we're doing one perturbation to the climate system, we're adding CO2, we've done something to the system, doing a second thing to the system is doubling the uncertainty. And in one sense, it is, you've got, you added a strong greenhouse gas forcing, forcing is the term for something which helps, which changes the earth energy budget and warm or cool it. So there's a greenhouse gas forcing, that's doing something novel to the system, and it has instantaneous effects or relatively quick effects on the system but then it also leads to warming and then you're doing something new you're adding an aerosol layer to the stratosphere which scatters light and it absorbs a little radiation warming the stratosphere that's a second type of forcing and so you've got two forcings having uncertain effects
0: when you add more solar geoengineering into the climate system aren't you just adding uncertainty aren't you increasing the overall level of risk because you don't know exactly what solar geoengineering does so does that not increase the overall level of risk that the system has and the overall level of uncertainty that there is in the system
1: yeah i think in this is a, a strong intuition that people have when they come across this idea and in a set to some extent it is right uh, but in an important way, something's missing. So it's worth recognizing that like the reason the Earth is 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 warming is because the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which we call a, a ri- having a radiative forcing effect. Now, solar engineering is an idea to add another different kind of radiative forcing, a negative radiative forcing that will cool the planet by adding a reflective layer of particles to the stratosphere. They'll they'll warm the stratosphere a little bit but they'll also cool the surface by reducing the amount of sunlight reaching it. So we've done two things to the system. We've added greenhouse gas forcings, and they'll have their uncertain effects. And then we've added stratospheric solar engineering or stratospheric aerosol engineering, which will have its uncertain forcing effects. But when it comes to the climate response, we don't just have to think about the forcing. We have to think about the feedback, the warming of the planet. There's a whole set of changes that come as the planet warms that are more or less independent of the forcing that led to the warming. So this is quite well established in the literature. We've, we've done various simulations in climate models that break this apart. You can think that there's a fast forcing driven response. For example, with CO2, the CO2 absorbs thermal radiation in the atmosphere. So if you just add it instantaneously into the climate model, you warm the atmospheric column. That leads to a suppression of convection and a weakening of rainfall and change in circulation. Now, different forcings have different...
0: Run that on past effect. me again. My, my understanding of it was that the that rainfall got more, you had more rainfall when there the CO2, there was more CO2 in the air. Well,
1: you're exactly right. But that's because the hydrological, it's like two parts to the response. There's this fast, instantaneous response that we sort of, we attribute to the forcing. It's things that basically change. Basically, the atmosphere can change very quickly. If you put, If you do something to the climate, the atmosphere is going to respond within a couple of days, very, very rapidly. But If the thing you've done is going to lead to the planet warming, that warming is going to take many decades to materialize. So it's useful to split the climate response into two parts, the fast forcing-driven response and the slow temperature-driven response. And that slow temperature response we found in our simulations is effectively independent of the forcing type. So solar, an increase in sunlight or an increase in CO2 will both warm the planet, somewhat different pattern, but They will have their separate fast effects and then a very similar slow temperature driven effect. And so you think it's natural to think that, you know, we've added greenhouse gases, we're adding solar engineering. That's two uncertain forcings, but they oppose. So we've got two uncertain forcings, but the net effect is to have a smaller or no change in temperature. And many of the things that we worry most about with climate change are tied to the warming of the planet. There's a whole bunch of consequences that are directly tied to the to the rising temperatures.
0: So run that one past me again. So how does the CO2 suppress rainfall on one time scale but exacerbate it in another?
1: Yeah. So so the fast effect, like if you just in a climate model, we do this all the time. I say it's a standard experiment, we just instantaneously double or quadruple CO2 concentrations. Now, what you'll see happen is the thermal radiation that's emitted from the surface heading up, trying to get up to space, a greater fraction of it is absorbed in the atmosphere straight away. So the atmosphere starts warming. In the first, like people have done these experiments and, like, you know, looked at it hour by hour and day by day, and you just get this rapid warming through the atmospheric column. Now, the, the atmosphere can warm much, much faster than the ocean because the so much less of it by mass.
0: To use the correct n- nomenclature here, what you were saying is that CO two changes the environmental lapse rate, so it deviates further from the adiabatic lapse rate.
1: Yeah, well, it warms the atmospheric column, and that by warming the atmospheric column, you're going to change. Uh, yeah you're changing the the energy budget of the atmosphere so the atmosphere this then has a consequence for hydrology for rainfall because one way to look at the, an important way of looking at the hydrological cycle you have water evaporating from the surface and then it condenses at high altitudes in the atmosphere clouds rain now that evaporation at the surface and condensation in the atmosphere involves a transfer of heat you take you take up heat energies absorb the, the ocean taking up heat to evaporate water. And then as that water condenses, it releases heat into the atmosphere. So part of the way, the energy budget of the planet involves that that transfer of latent heat from the surface to the atmosphere. Now, if the atmosphere is already warmer because the CO2 has been added, the demand for that heat transfer is reduced. The earth has got to lose its heat to space and it gets there three ways. I mean, one is the thermal radiation that gets emitted. The other is warm parcels of air, like just a, just a shifting of a warm parcel of air into a cooler parcel of air transfers heat. And then there's this latent heat transfer that's the evaporated water at the surface condenses at higher altitudes and that releases heat. So these three means get heat from the surface to the atmosphere. And by adding CO2, you've suddenly warmed the atmosphere and that suppresses the potential for whatever to condense. And you get reduction, a very fast reduction in rainfall. But you also will in the long run form the planet. So, in these experiments where you instantly quadruple CO two concentrations, global mean rainfall drops in the first year or so, and then starts to pick up until it crosses zero within a a few years, and then, in the long run, you you get a net intensification of the hydrological cycle. A warmer world, the 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 air could carry more moisture, and so more of it is shifted up into the into the atmosphere. And so, yeah, in the in the real world where CO two is added gradually to the system. The the net effect is is, a, is an intensification of the hydrological cycle because you get some of the warming happening and then some of the fast effect happening at the same time and they and they cancel out such that you get an intensification, a speeding up of the hydrological cycle.
0: Okay, that's all fascinating. I learned a lot, but not very much about solar geoengineering. So let's get back onto that topic. We to put it into context, what what's residual demand for solar geoengineering like to be in your view? Because are we in a situation where we can realistically expect that the energy transformation will be quick and we won't have so much CO2 to deal with? And we also have a situation where the natural sinks of carbon dioxide are going to slowly sap that CO2 away in a way which, although you might not like the higher temperatures, that the long-term damage is modest because most of the damage occurs on the fast ascent, not on the slow descent, right? right? Um, yeah, so I just want
1: to I sort of come back, actually. I think what I was saying is very relevant for solid engineering, because with solid engineering, you're eliminating that slow temperature-driven feedback. So you get the fast effects of CO2 persist. So we have this suppression of rainfall, and that's why we get a weakening of rainfall in our in our solid engineering simulations. It's because of the fast effect of CO2 that we can't counter. The fact that CO2 is there, it's going to suppress rainfall. And unless that's offset by the warming of the planet, we're going to get a a reduction. So solar geoengineering, in effect, doesn't address that fast effect of of, of CO2, but does address the the warming. And many of the risks of climate change uh, are driven by by the temperature
0: change. I want to understand what you think about the need, the demand for solar geoengineering in the long run.
1: Climate change is happening today and people are losing their lives. Species are getting affected. You know, and we will, you know, in the absence of solar engineering, we'll bring climate change to a halt at some point. The question I wonder is, could we reduce the suffering that we'll see on the way there? Now, how much suffering we'll see, how much impact we'll see from climate change depends on what we do. If we really rapidly cut emissions, if, you know, there's some dramatic turnaround and, you know, every country redoubles their efforts to cut emissions, you know, we might limit warming. I think one and a half is incredibly optimistic, but maybe we can limit warming to two, maybe even 1.8 Celsius if we're really, really, really fast. But that means we've still got another, you know, we've got another. Still got the sea level rise back in, right? Yes, we've still got sea level rise and we still we still have substantial change coming. So regardless of what we do, we're going to have substantial climate change from today, which will cause suffering that solar engineering might be able to reduce. And, and it depends on the scale. So, you know, if it was the case that we were, you know, you know, emissions are already falling rapidly, and it looks like we're on track for limiting warming, you know, below one and a half Celsius, then incentives for doing solar engineering are limited. If, on the other hand, we believe what countries say they're going to do, which is to not really cut emissions as a globally, as a whole, so that, you know, global emissions will still be about what they are today in 2030, then we've got considerable impacts
0: coming. And yeah. Let me just draw you on the, the consequences because, as I said earlier, I think adapting to heat changes is a relatively modest challenge. I think that while ecosystems will be effective, still have functioning ecosystems. We're not talking about something which would, you know, render the earth inoperable as a as an ecosystem. And, and humans will grow different crops in different places and they're going to have houses that are designed a little bit differently. People will adapt to that. But I, again, I just want to draw in the sea level rise. How are we supposed to adapt, you know, Five six meters higher sea level rise. I can't see. Well, I think the first
1: thing to know is that the upper end of projections for the twenty first century are roughly one meter of sea level for the very high emission scenarios. There's that upper estimate is is very what's the word? It's not super robust because there's lots of ways in which ice sheets may respond much more quickly than our models predict. Our models
0: have got lots of shortcomings, and there's a big challenge there. So sea level rise could go faster. but, but let's look at this. I mean, people often run their climate orders up to 2100 and think, well, okay, that's the end of the, the game, right? But, it, but it isn't, that's not true. I mean, if you look at infrastructure, so, you know, the UK where we both hail from has a considerable amount of infrastructure, which is, it's still intact and used, although upgraded and modified, most notably the railways that is around 200 years old, right? So that would take us out to, you know, somewhere around 2220. Which should be where our kind of planning and thinking might be headed, and that's well into the 23rd century. So, you know, could be facing very much higher levels of sea level rise than than you're describing there. So, is is it not sensible that we should think about that?
1: Yeah, sea level rise. Sea level rise is one of the big challenges of climate change of the 21st century, and it will be the dominant challenge in the 22nd century and beyond. That will be that will define climate change. Climate change won't be about temperature change in the 22nd century. It'll be about sea level rise. I'm confident of that. So as I said, I, I don't know enough about how, how bad it will be in terms of how easy it will be to adapt, how hard, you know, whether we'll have to abandon Shanghai in 21. I have no idea on that side. So, it's an incredibly difficult problem. and I, I don't, I can't really comment.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the paleoclimatic records, when people talk about low levels of sea level rise, in the 21st century, but if you look at the paleoclimatic record, the warming's in the pipeline and we, it's going to come down towards us pretty inevitably. And we know those kind of figures of somewhere in the order of around five meters of sea level rise. So that's not just a figure that I've you know completely made up. You know, we are looking at sort of levels of sea level rise when the Greenland ice sheet has dissipated completely of around that kind of level, right? So,
1: yeah, it's worth it's worth. I think one of the things that's quite easy to do with sea level is look at, you know, the there are projections that, you know, if the climate stayed as it is, or it stayed at two Celsius or four Celsius, you know, how much ice would be lost in the long run. And yeah, the Greenland ice sheet may be unstable even at today's levels of temperature. But that destabilization, that loss of the ice sheet will take thousands of years. Now, parts of it will go much more quickly than that. But I mean, I think, for example, the West Antarctic ice sheet is an area that Everyone's worrying a great deal about in the in the ice sheet community, and it's expected to go really fast over the course of five hundred plus years, maybe. So it's we've got to bear in mind that even the very fast processes in ice sheets are pretty slow, and the 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 full consequences of like that will happen over the course of ten thousand years, which can be pretty quick in the geological record. You know, between the ice, you know, getting out of the ice age and last ice age, the previous interglacial sea levels were significantly higher, like these processes take a long time to materialize and so one thing to handle you know half a meter sea level rise in a century depends on the time scale so if you got half a meter sea level rise this century and it was a half meter again every century afterwards that's one type of challenge if it was half a meter this century and then five meters the next that's a fundamentally different scale of challenge so i think we need to bear in mind the rate of change and yeah it it will go faster than it will be in the 21st century in the 22nd and 23rd but yeah, it's not going to be seven meters of sea level rise, you know,
0: tomorrow. It, some of these processes are very slow. So, if I could draw you on this um, demand for, uh, I'm to do is to get an understanding of what you think the total amount of degrees of cooling or watts per meter forcing that we might, as a society, need to derive from SRM. So, let me give you a couple of different scenarios. So, you might say, for example, well. We're going to stop climate change in 2040 and make sure that we get no further climate change. And I know that you published a paper showing giving, I think it was called a temporary moderate paper where you have, you're halving the warming from the point in which you intervene. So I think it starts at 2030, and then you kind of remove half of all warming from that day. Now, that's a model. Okay. And models are not policies. An alternative might be that you say, well, actually, what we need to do is completely reverse global warming using solar radiation management. Even after we've stopped emissions at, say, two degrees, your personal belief might be that we need to remove every single scrap of warming in the system and go right back down to pre-industrial. And that's what I'm talking about with the demand. Now, the reason I'm trying to draw you on this point is because I think it's fundamental to understanding how you view solar radiation management as a political policy option do you view it as something which is used to attenuate future warming or to reverse previous warming and that's intricately linked to the carbon dioxide removal scope and possibilities because if your genuine belief is that we can remove all of the carbon dioxide that's been emitted since the industrial revolution then demand for solar geoengineering in the very long term might be very low it might be high in the short term because while we're doing that drawdown process there might be we might decide to take it all the way back to pre-industrial. Other people might be a lot more sanguine about climate change and they might say well look we'll have we we'll might continue to admit late into the 21st century we're going to have at least two degrees of warming we're going to have to live with that we're not going to bother to do any carbon dioxide removal to remove the two degrees of warming. We will have additional warming there'll be an overshoot over two degrees but we won't be able to deal with that for maybe 50 years 100 years and we're going to have to use solar radiation management in the meantime. So what I'm trying to do here is give me your personal viewpoint is on what's often termed the napkin diagram, the demand for solar radiation management. How do you feel it fits into a policy landscape? To, we can
1: could, we could stop the climate warming by eliminating CO2 emissions, but we're going to get substantial warming from today. Carbon dioxide removal offers us a way to gradually lower CO2 concentrations and temperatures. Now, There are some issues I'm sure you've talked about elsewhere that if you try to scale this up using things like the bioenergy and carbon captured storage, you're going to put quite a heavy burden on the land and that's going to have big ecosystem impacts and other impacts. So there might be limits to the scale of ideas that that use a lot of land, but we can talk about that later. So there might be, and then on the other side of using like energy-based systems like direct air capture or something else, there's economic limits on, on the scale at which you can deploy this which might increase over time. So, so I think it's unclear how much, how fast you could deliver negative emissions, CDR, at scale. There's also, I think, I think you raised this earlier bit. I think there's also a question to ask, like countries today, their climate policy is built in part upon promises of future negative emissions. It's like our plan, basically our plans are consistent with one and a half Celsius because... We're assuming that in the 2070s and 2080s there'll be a huge
0: amount of negative emissions and that's that'll bring us back
1: under so one Mc,
0: and a half. Mc, yeah, McLaren's technologies of procrastination, right?
1: And there's there's something to it. I mean, it's it's I mean, I think the idea has potential and it could be part a, a big part of future cloud policy. But in a sense, it is also a promise that the future is going to do something that the future might not be inclined to do. And and I think on the one hand, Thinking in terms of will that will the future actually bother to pull co2 out of the atmosphere on the one hand you know the planet will have more or less stopped warming as we get co2 emissions to net zero that means the challenge of climate change is going to it's going to be at its peak but it's going to be diminishing thereafter because we'll be adapted or adapting and yeah the, the world will probably be in many ways more difficult but not unlivable so yeah the incentives for driving co2 down made be less large than we might think they are I think by the time we get up there but I'm, I'm not sure so I think there is there is there's reason to doubt that those promises can be fully realized or the, the
0: scale at which they can be they can be so, uh, done. So, to put this into context I, I mean what where do you stand on energy I mean at the moment we, we live in a fossil economy but revolutions happen pretty fast and people are buying a lot of things like electric cars there's a lot of solar panels going in so what's your view on where the Energy transition is going to head? Do you think do you think the fossils are going to be a busted flush by 2030? Or do you think they're still going to be around in a big way by 2040, 2050?
1: It's a good question. It's a really big question. There are a lot of people who know a lot more about it than me. I mean, I, I I think I think a lot of people in the climate community stick a little too closely to these SSP, these RCP scenarios. Like these are not, these are just rough guesses of how the future could evolve. They're not pathways that we are stuck upon. And I think. They sort of have, in a sense, a time-consistent level of effort in addressing climate change. So in the case of the high emission scenarios, effectively it's return to 19th century energy policy, a big boom in coal that lasts a whole century long. And then the other scenarios, I mean, I I don't I don't think those are the right place to look for projections of where the energy system is going. I think people like the IEA, which have been International Energy Authority, which have been quite Conservative on solar power are really now changing their tune, and they see that this is we are. They've been quite wrong
0: about solar power. I think they've they've been been very very wrong about solar power for a long time. But I
1: think I think those types of organisations are now forecasting a sort of plateauing of demand uh, for coal, oil, maybe not for gas over the next decade or two. How it evolves after that, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the question is, you know, you look at countries like or countries and places like uh, the UK, Germany, and California. They've achieved fairly rapid transformations of their power sector. But the question is, as they go to the harder to decarbonize sectors, are they going to, be able to keep the pace up or are they going to lag? I, I don't know. As we go from a power sector that or in places that's, I don't know, 30, 40 percent renewables, trying to push that to 80 percent renewables. Is that going to be a really major hurdle or is it going to be overcome? I mean, there's huge, huge incentives to solve that problem and masses of money to be made and masses of investment going into trying to fix that problem and, and make the money to be made there. But will it work? How well will it work? How fast will it work? I don't know. I mean, I my, I think the world reaching net zero by 2050 is, is very unlikely. I think the world reaching net zero by 2070, 2080 is sort of my best guess, but it's not a particularly well-informed guess. So I I, I think we will, will get towards.
0: I mean, that, that's actually quite a slow transition. I mean, that's 60 years away, and you think we're still going to be, you know, the tail end of the fossil fuel economy in 60 years' time, right?
1: Yeah, but like I said, I'm not really an expert in this. That's sort of my, that's my rough guess, but it is not a particularly well-informed one, I
0: know. The challenge to this, as you're sort of alluding to here, is that to work out the budget for solar radiation management, the demand for it, we have to solve all of these other problems. And I think that goes on to the idea of this kind of readiness idea that you, you want the... Um, The seatbelt there in case you crash the car, not because you know you're going to crash the car, right?
1: Well, this is this is something something to think. I mean, what what is solar engineering for? Is it a Plan B? Is it an emergency option? I think those really are the wrong way of looking about it. Because, like, I mean, if you think about it, if we've got if we've got a technology that potentially could reduce this climate change. Why should we wait until we've reached the point where the climate has got to some terrible catastrophe that everyone agrees? Well, now it's really gone wrong and we didn't succeed. Let's let's do something about it. I mean, no such clear line will materialize. I mean, the impacts of climate change will become unbearable in some places, sometimes
0: soon. You're basically what you're doing is you're rejecting deadlineism, right?
1: The way I think it's technology that might reduce the risks of climate change. And given that there are inevitable risks of climate change, no matter how rapidly we cut emissions, that potentially could be reduced by this technology, that seems good motivation. I mean, of course, there are lots of consequences that could undermine that. There's lots of risks, you know, one being the potential for mitigation deterrence or a delay in emissions cuts. You know, if people think we've got an, an easy solution now, will they will they let up on emissions cuts? The other a risk, real... do
0: you think that is?
1: I, it's perceived to be the biggest risk. Uh, well, it's, it's perceived to be a very very large risk. I, I think it's worth drawing the comparison with carbon dioxide removal. I think carbon dioxide removal, in s- sense, has, yeah, carbon dioxide removal, in. in some some reasonable perspectives that say carbon dioxide removal has already had a mitigation deterrence effect because it allows countries to say, my emissions policy is consistent with one and a half Celsius. therefore what I'm doing today is sufficient. Now, that's kind of validity to that, although the alternative would be, all right, well, we can't hit one and a half Celsius, so now the temperature target is two Celsius, and my emissions are consistent with that. Like I, I think yeah, there's, there's a question of whether these, these these temperature thresholds, I don't know, whether whether this is really binding nations or whether they're just proposing one that they can actually hit and carbon dioxide removal makes, them, makes that possible.
0: What I think you're saying there is that there is a capacity for any technology, carbon dioxide removal, adaptation, whatever, to act as a reason to delay doing the hard things. And your own personal projection is that the transition from the fossil fuel economy is, relatively speaking, quite slow. You're kind of thinking another 60 years of extensive fossil use, probably tailing down towards the back end of it, reading between the lines, but nevertheless significant emissions.
1: I mean, I think think emissions are not going to rise much more than they are today, but I think they're going to plateau for a while. And then I, I don't know how quickly they will fall. I guess, I think there's been enormous progress. To recap,
0: you see a relatively slow transition from fossil fuels, not much of a rise from where we are at the moment, but a long, slow descent, which leaves us with quite a lot of climate change baked in the system. You see the challenges of sea level rise as important, but concentrated very much into the deep future, which is probably realistically beyond the kind of planning horizon of humanity. So 500 years hence I, no,
1: I, I wouldn't say that I think some of what I was saying is I think I think it's easy to get alarmist about sea level rise by looking at those very long-term projections and going oh my goodness there'll be 20 meters of sea level rise no what you need to focus on is you know you know sea level rise per century or per decade that's the, the rate is what matters in terms of the the impacts that's you know the, the, the adaptation challenge I don't know how bad sea level rise will be at a local or city level that's I believe it's going to be bad, but I, I can't really speak to how bad and how easy it
0: will be to adapt. There's a considerable amount of uncertainty in the tra- the energy transition, the adaptation of the energy system to, to new energy technologies like solar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's difficult to form quantified projection of the total amount of cooling that we might demand from solar radiation management. And therefore, I think what you're saying is that solar radiation management has an uncertain policy position at the moment in terms of being not a prescriptive way of, for example, cooling by 0.5 degrees centigrade, but a potential toolkit that enables us to respond more effectively to a wider range of possible future scenarios. Is is that how you see
1: it? How I see it is solar engineering may, in the fullness of time after we've done a very thorough evaluation of it, it may look to have a potential to substantially reduce climate risks if that turns out to be the case after we've done all the the work and if the governance can develop and so on and so forth then you know if there's a way to reduce the risk of climate change and there will inevitably be future risks of climate change regardless of how quickly emissions cuts are done then this might play a role alongside those other policies in reducing climate risks now The the higher emissions are, the greater the incentive, you know, the greater the impacts will be, and therefore the greater the incentive to intervene in this way. If instead emissions cuts are very rapid over the next decade, then the incentive to pursue this and and have those difficult conversations is reduced. But I think, you know, roughly speaking, the trajectory that we're on is circa another Celsius or so of warming, roughly. It's very hard to say exactly. But I think there might be good reason to try and do something to reduce the impacts of that Additional Celsius of warming. Would it make sense to offset half of that one Celsius increase or offset all of it? We need to have a look and see how the climate responds in our in our models, try and build an understanding of, of the risks.
0: Now, in terms of the development of solar geoengineering as a field, obviously that's controversial. You know, should it be public funded? Should we have megalomaniac billionaires doing the work? You know, should it be done by people working in their spare time as it as it has been at the moment? What how do you you work in the field so you have a you know at the coal face understanding of how this work is done on a day-to-day basis what do you think how is it done at the moment and and how should it be done and how will it be done they they could be three very different things
1: yeah i think those those three avenues have been where the funding has come from so i think i believe most of the work for geomip the geoengineering model and comparison project Most of that was sort of semi-voluntary, as in people who were working at different climate modeling centers, putting some of their time, their available time for research into this without, you know, submitting some funding application somewhere. They did it in their spare time, effectively. A lot of PhD students were funded, which are sort of not usually on a separate channel than the main kind of, you know, funding from a research council. There's been quite a bit of funding from research councils. But in recent years, philanthropic funding in the US has really increased a lot and, yeah, that's, I believe, now the dominant funding source for this for this topic, although I don't
0: know
1: how big the informal funding for solid engineering is at the moment. For example, I, I just got a PhD student. So, you know, whether, you know, if you could add that up, would it up to quite a lot? I, I don't know. But yeah, philanthropic funding is a very big player at the moment. I think this is an issue that I mean, I think this is a potentially really important policy issue that might materialize in the next 10 20 years as a serious option for for action it seems it seems remiss for you know funders and governments not to be taking this seriously and not to be assessing the potential and the risks you know on the, on the on the physical side but also the governance geopolitical and so on if this is an idea that's getting taken seriously the science seems to suggest that it could work and that it might help reduce risks in a way it seems should not just be left to billionaires
0: to, to to do this out of their own pocket it should be a, a priority for governments so you see the funding coming through the conventional funding channels of things like nurk in the uk right national environmental research councils right
1: i i believe it should i don't think it's been a priority and i think yeah but but
0: i believe it i believe it should be okay so on the podcast so far we've covered your background which i think is important to understand where you're coming from we've covered Quite a Bit on the mechanics of solar geoengineering and the, the challenges of developing it and how it works in the atmosphere. We've covered how the political landscape could be complemented by the availability of solar geoengineering as a policy option because, at least, because of the uncertainties in working out how long the energy transition will take to have the movers away from the legacy fossil fuel economy. We've talked about how funding arises for solid geoengineering engineering and how it could be improved in the future with a greater public subscription. And we've talked about how dreadful your Internet connection is, despite you being in one of the world's major cities. Is there anything else that you'd like to cover any other areas of of your work and the field more generally that you think needs to be more fully explored to answer the critics that say this shouldn't be researched or shouldn't be developed as a field? that there's no safe ways to govern it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I mean, I I think it's absolutely right that there are big reasons to be worried about this idea getting developed. I think the mitigation deterrence effect is something to worry about, like how the politics of this will play out, whether it'll be used as an excuse to cut not cut emissions rapidly. Geopolitical concerns are real. The concerns that, you know, will this idea be governed in a way that's, that's fair is a reasonable concern. But I think we, I think, While those are reasonable concerns, there is a strong motivation to think seriously about this idea. You know, an additional one Celsius of warming, any further warming is going to cause considerable suffering, loss of species and impacts around the world. It looks like solar engineering could be effective in reducing many of those risks. Many of the risks of climate change are strongly correlated with temperature, and we know they will be reduced by this idea. You know, extreme heat is one of the leading Drivers of, of impact on, on people and, and ecosystems. In fact, when we, when you, when the modelers simplify and focus only on the most relevant variables, they practically drop everything else except for temperature in economic projections of how the climate will affect the economy and for projecting ecosystem impacts. Temperature is a really important driver of climate impacts. Temperature also drives extreme precipitation. The warmer the air gets, the more moisture it carries, and the more rain dumps out during storms. By lowering temperatures, will reduce extreme rainfall it, almost universally. And sea level rise. Sea level rise is driven by the warming of the oceans and the melting of ice on land. By lowering temperatures, solar engineering is bound to reduce sea level rise relative to a case without solar engineering. It would be very hard to eliminate sea level rise. So, And then, yeah, on the hydrological stuff, the, the area where I'm, I'm most concerned about the effects of stratospheric aerosol engineering, we find that in more places than than not, it reduces the effects of climate change. Though in some, it does increase those effects. So yes, it won't universally reduce all the risks of climate change. But for those that are linked to temperature, we've, we've got a good degree of confidence that it will reduce those. And on the hydrological side, there's there's work to be done to assess those impacts. There's good reason to be worried about this idea. But you know, this isn't just an idea that's sprung out of nowhere. We're not just trying to improve the climate, and the climate's fine the way it is. The climate's changing. People are suffering, and you know, even if things go well in terms of climate policy, there will be considerable suffering to come. And solar engineering might offer a way to reduce that. We need to understand that. We need to have that in the conversation and um, to see whether we can resolve those issues, those other real issues of mitigation deterrence, the geopolitics, and the governance. There's incentive to tackle those and not just to presume they're undoable.
0: Yeah, I think you, you've made a convincing defense of your position thanks for coming on, which has been very long and a hard to edit podcast due to your absolutely mm. terrible connection in London. So I will look forward to you robustly defending your position in future in forums other than this. Thanks for coming on. Right. Thank you. So.